Um, so in the Red Pew Bible, it will be on page 768, starting at verse 20, chapter 20. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lining, lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Jesus appears to Mary Magdalene. Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Women, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realise that it was Jesus. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned around, she turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am returning to my Father and your Father, and to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with news. I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had these things that he had said these things to her. Jesus appears to his disciples. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for the fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone of his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. All right, let us pray. Lord, we thank you for this time we share together. Uh, we thank you for the gift of your word. And we pray that you'd help us to understand it now and benefit from it and grow uh, in our knowledge of you and in our trust in you. Thank you for this time. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is supposed to be a, a very joyful service. Uh, it's, we're supposed to be focusing on really good things. Uh, but like some songs start out slowly, you know, and then they, they kind of reach a crescendo, that's where I'm hoping to go at the start here. So don't get too discouraged as we look at your introduction in your bulletin there, if you can see it. 
uh, I've got the title about experiencing despair. So we're going to start low. Uh, some feelings are uncomfortable, aren't they? And the experience of despair is one of those very uncomfortable feelings. You can see it in the faces of those whose team is losing uh, on TV. Sometimes the cameras pan in on people bawling their eyes out as their as their tennis players going down or their football teams not climbing to the top of the heap, and uh, they're all they're all in despair. But the fact is, those things are just trivial, aren't they? I mean, I like sport as much as the next person, but the reality is, it, it is just a bit of trivia. Uh, when you compare it to the hopelessness of people who experience great hardship, people displaced from war-torn countries, those who are experiencing famine and are wondering how they're going to feed their children, uh, people who you see in pictures in prisons tied there with a, some sort of handcuff with next to no clothes on and not much food, uh, those who are in concentration camps or have to deal with some very hard labour. I mean, you, you talk about experiencing despair. I'd take losing my soccer team losing any day compared to any of those other things. The other thing about experiencing despair is that it's not restricted just to those great moments of hardship, though. There's it's an irony here that even though um, you know, we live in a first-world nation, uh, we can still experience despair. You don't have to be living in the third world to undergo that ordeal. In fact, in Australia, some people can be filthy rich and also experience despair. Uh, there was a, a character by the name of Rene Rifkin. Those of you who are about my age might have heard of him. If you're younger, I'll just brief you. He was a stockbroker. He was loaded. In fact, he was doing so well in life, he organised a, a, uh, a soccer match in Sydney at the Sydney Olympic Park between Manchester United and the, and the Socceroos. And he had so much money that he could organise a kick from halfway where somebody got pulled out of the crowd, they, they drew the lucky card, and, and they were allowed to kick the soccer ball and try to put it in the goals. And if they did, they would have won $20,000 just from Renee. And he described himself as... Uh, a guy who was a fat kid who was bad at sport but still liked it and then he, he described himself as a fat adult who liked sport and really wanted to, I think, have a go himself. But he, he selected some unemployed chap who, who had a shot, missed the goal and he gave him so many thousands anyway. That's how, how well off Renee Rivkin was. And I thought he had it together, actually. I thought he was pretty with it, uh, quite jovial. Uh, and on a TV interview, he, he remarked that although he was rich, he wasn't happy. He was, he was experiencing despair in his own life. He, he lived in a first world country. He's one of the richest guys in Australia, it seemed. And uh, even though he was rich, he still experienced despair. In fact, he even later took his own life on the 1st of May 2005. Well, what about us? As we face hardship, relationship strain, Stress at home or stress at work is despair our only option when we're confronted with different life challenges? Or is there a different kind of foundation that we can proceed from, that our souls can rely on?
Well, this Resurrection Sunday, uh, we're coming to God's Word for some guidance and for some hope and encouragement. So that even if we're tempted to despair, we can, we can keep perspective on life. Now, before we get to John chapter 20, uh, Jesus has actually raised the topic of resurrection throughout his ministry. And we start to see that John 20 focuses on the resurrection of Jesus. But there's already been hints throughout this gospel that have come up. Jesus spoke about himself being the bread of life. And he reminded his followers of their ultimate future with him as, as the one who could sustain them in life. In chapter 6, verse 40, he says, For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I'll raise him up at the last day. And so there's hints of this idea of a resurrection future that start earlier in John's Gospel. We see another incident when Jesus meets up with... Um, Mary and Martha, after their brother Lazarus dies. Jesus said to Martha, your brother will rise again. And she said, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. And so there's, on the one hand, an expectation from the disciples of Jesus that there is a bright future that involves the resurrection of Jesus and him raising his people as well. And yet human nature being what it is, by the time Jesus is actually handed over and crucified, they watch him die in their midst, they might start to strain at their belief in what he'd, he'd told them earlier. They might start to forget the truth of what he'd said to them. And so in this passage today in John chapter 20, we start to see some of his disciples puzzling over this situation of the missing Jesus. Jesus had been handed over by the priests and the teachers of the law to the Romans for crucifixion. We know that he had died and was buried and placed in a tomb that's what Scott spoke about on Friday and there was a stone that was laid across the entrance we know from other gospels it was guarded but today we're invited into the action as we see the story from Mary's perspective in chapter 20 verse 1 there's Mary Magdalene she was once a devout follower of Jesus in Luke's Gospel, we're told that she was one who was healed of demon possession and became a, a very solid follower. She arrives just before dawn to the tomb of Jesus and gets a surprise. But it's not a very nice surprise, for she sees that the stone's missing, it's, it's been taken away, and the body of Jesus is gone. And in her surprise, she runs. She runs to Peter and the disciple whom Jesus loved, which is the guy who wrote this book, John. That's the, the main standing theory. And even though Jesus had spoken about the victory of the resurrection, his followers still had a hard time getting used to how things would actually pan out. And so there is puzzlement. They're confronted with some evidence and they're trying to make sense of it. Mary doesn't think initially in terms of Jesus being raised. 
Instead, she says to Peter and John, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've put him. But the pieces of the puzzle, the stone, the linen and the face cloth, start to sow seeds of hope into their hearts as they come to terms with this new situation of Jesus who's gone. I'll pick it up in verse 6 if you're following along there. In verse 6, Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. As we read, we're actually starting to think, well, maybe somebody has. If we read this for the first time, I mean, most of you have been to Sunday school, so you know, the, you know how it plays out. And we, we had it read today too, haven't we? But if we were reading this for the first time, initially we're led to think that maybe somebody has come just to take Jesus away. But there's a steady build-up of evidence that there's maybe more going on than that with these grave clothes. And so the disciples must have been pretty curious about what's going on. Perhaps the things that Jesus said to them before he died started to flood back to them in their minds. And they just started to allow themselves to believe once again the things that he'd actually been saying to them about his future and their future. We'll pick it up in verse 8. Finally, the other disciple who reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. At last, John starts to piece together this puzzle. He can see the bigger picture now of why Jesus isn't actually in the tomb. He notices that the tomb is empty and the grave clothes are still there and he perceives the reason and it's because Jesus is risen and we're told that he believes the pennies dropped. But the comment comes that they still did not understand from scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Well, that reminds us of a couple of things. It reminds us of the fact that, that he, he rises on it from the dead in accordance with what the Bible's already taught. And it also reminds us that they're still piecing together this unfolding message of how Jesus fulfills the scriptures. They're still getting a handle on how the Bible is fulfilled. They didn't see it at the time, but they start to see it later. For example, we see this in the book of Acts, when the Apostle, po Paul, uh, the Apostle Peter, rather, that's a tongue twister, uh, he uh, quotes from Psalm chapter 16, and he talks about how the psalmist prophesied that God's king wouldn't remain dead and remain rotting in the ground. Peter notes the psalmist foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. That he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption, which is a way of talking about rot. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. He's saying we've witnessed the resurrected Jesus and we've witnessed the spirit being poured out on God's people as a deposit guaranteeing their salvation. And so that was an example of how Peter later understood from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead, not stay in the ground. He couldn't give anyone life if he was dead in the ground. It's only through being raised he could give us life, give us God's spirit. 
Now, in terms of our journey of belief, growing in a knowledge of God's word just takes time, doesn't it? It can take time to read God's word, understand it in its context, and see how the storyline of salvation fits together. And of course, at this stage in the storyline of salvation, we're up to the resurrection story. And we're told that it's an important part of the, of the story as well. If Jesus wasn't raised, Paul reminds us that we'd be a kind of laughing stock. This is what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 17. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. Now that word futile is a way of saying it's, it's ridiculous, it's pointless. And you are still in your sins. If Jesus, uh, his sacrifice wasn't acceptable and God didn't raise him, uh, we wouldn't have had our sins dealt with. Paul continues, If in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. Which is his way of saying uh, we should be laughed at. If, if Jesus hasn't been risen, it's all been a waste of time. We should be looked down upon. But he continues and says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. He's saying Jesus is the first of the resurrected age and those who've died amongst them, they'll also be raised and we in turn after that. But it took a while for the first disciples to make sense of the fact that Jesus was raised. He was alive again and able to pour out God's spirit into their hearts and give this salvation to God's people. Well, that promise of salvation which they were relying on is, is a promise of salvation that continues today to people like us. Paul writes in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. There's a comforting promise, isn't it? Well, growing in a knowledge of God's word can take time, can't it? It can take time to understand how this storyline of salvation fits together but the promises are still there for you and I to receive. Well back in the story in John's Gospel we see some sorrow turn to joy. Initially Mary who's an eyewitness, the irony here is even though she's an eyewitness she finds it hard to see. In verse 11, now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept she bent over to look into the tomb and she saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They've taken away my Lord, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realise that it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I will get him. This is an interesting part of the Bible, isn't it? Mary's visited by two angels. That hasn't happened to me recently. Uh, and she seems to be unmoved by this supernatural encounter. Her sorrow is clearly running very deep. And she's focused or fixated on the idea that somebody's taken Jesus away. So much so she doesn't even recognise Jesus when he's with her. 
Now, at one level, we can sort of think this is a bit odd, but uh, at another level, we can actually appreciate this kind of situation, can't we? If you think about the times in your life when you've been at your saddest, think about the times in your life where you might have been frightened. Perhaps you might have had news of a health scare, your, your own or somebody else's. Uh, thoughts at those times can start to spiral out of control, can't they? They can take a, a life of their own and get beyond the realms of reality. And it's during those times that it can be hard to think straight when you're in a crisis, when you're in a panic. Seeing things for what they are is not always easy. And it can be hard to get off that track of a thought that might be dominating us in those times, mulling over things again and again. Well, we can see, see here that Mary is dominated by the idea that somebody's taken Jesus away. And it's hard for her to move off from that idea to maybe the hope that she held out before of a resurrected Lord Jesus. In her distress, it's hard for Mary to see the reality before her, even as she speaks to Jesus. But eventually, her sorrow does give away to joy. In verse 16, Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And so the, the tone of her response now changes. Just as Peter and John saw and believed, now Mary can see past her tears of sadness. She can see the risen Lord and her feelings start to follow the facts. Jesus is alive and now she can be joyful. If that's the fact, her feelings can start to follow. Well, what about you and I? Do we have that kind of hope that leads also to joy? I must say there is nothing quite like hopelessness, is there? Facing the future, feeling that there is no hope, can grind people down. The idea that life is meaningless uh, and that there isn't a bright future can tend to wither people's feelings of hope and discourage them. And that's a worldview that some people do live with, isn't it? A, a worldview of despair and hopelessness. I'll read you a quote from somebody who lived in that kind of world. He says that man is the product of causes which had no prevision of the end they were achieving. This is his way of saying this. There's nobody in charge from start to finish who's in control of it all. That his origin, his growth, his hopes and fears, his loves and his beliefs are but the outcome of accidental colliding atoms. This is the idea that loss... Life's just a random set of accidents, of random atoms banging into, into each other. That no fire, no heroism, no intensity of thought and feeling can preserve an individual life beyond the grave. That all the labours of the ages, all the devotion, all the inspiration, all the noonday brightness of human genius are destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system. That the whole temple of man's achievement must inevitably be buried beneath the debris of a universe in ruins. All these things 
if not quite beyond dispute, are yet so nearly certain that no philosophy which rejects them can hope to stand. Only within these truths, only on the firm foundation of unyielding despair can the soul's habitation be safely built. That's what Bertrand Russell thinks about life and hope. We can only build... Did, did you get the take-home message of that one? He's saying the only way to go forwards in life is to build your hope on the unyielding foundation of, of despair. That's the bedrock. According to Bertrand Russell, there is no God. There is no meaning. There is no hope now. And there's no hope beyond the grave. When the sun finally goes out and somehow the universe implodes, there is nothing. There's no hope. There's no truth, justice, beauty, love or meaning. It's just all one darn thing after another until it implodes. Well, there's a worldview of, uh, of hope, isn't it? There's not much in that. That's great stuff, isn't it? Well, folks, I've got to tell you, I'm not trying to persuade you of that worldview. <laughs> it's not one I share. Um, so I'm trying not to do too good a job of it. Uh, that's one approach to life, but it's not one that I take. And it's not one that Mary seemed to have here in the passage either. If you can feel the weight of this passage today, we see that Mary's worldview is not like that. She's actually filled with hope and joy. She can see that Jesus isn't dead. He's risen. She's come to terms that there is a living hope of new life, which extends both from now into eternity, beyond the grave. She's not unhappy. Her feelings are following the facts of the risen Lord Jesus as the first witness. But do we share that kind of hope that leads to joy? Or do we stand with Bertrand Russell with our souls on a foundation of despair? Well, Jesus points us to a living hope in the next few verses as well. It's not the end for him. Uh, we're, we're given a, a mention of the ascension of Jesus in verses 17 to 18. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I've seen the Lord. And she told them that he said these things to her. The ascension of Jesus is part of his exaltation. He told his disciples that he's uh, going to his father's house and he's going to prepare a place for them and take them to be with him some time. But prior to that time, he appears to his disciples and he stands amongst them and blesses them and in response to seeing him and his wounds, his disciples in verse 20 are overjoyed when they see the risen Lord as well. They've got a, a foundation of hope through his resurrected life. Once again, the natural response to them is joy because they know that salvation is a reality. In verse 21, Jesus again says, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. 
With these words, we're reminded that the risen Lord Jesus is the one who pours out the Holy Spirit. It's possible that uh, this seems to be an, an acted parable of what's actually going to come next at Pentecost when the, when the Spirit is poured out. And the reference to the forgiveness of sins, I take to mean that as the apostles share the news that Jesus has been a sin-bearing sacrifice, the one who brings forgiveness, uh, they can give people assurance that if they trust that message, they can be sure of their salvation. If they believe in the risen Lord Jesus and have their trust in him, they will be saved. The, the apostles give people this assurance. It's not just wishful thinking that people can have life with God. And the mission goes on. Jesus was sent by the Father and he sends the disciples out. The message goes out to the world of hope on account of the forgiveness of sins. That mission, mission began back then and it continues today. Even today, people come to terms with the forgiveness that's offered through Jesus and what he's done. And they receive the gift of God's Spirit as a guarantee of the salvation they'll one day inherit. In fact, even in recent times, one of my friends uh, become a Christian. And uh, Scott was speaking to him semi-recently and, and Scott asked him about how he was going with his faith and the response was a good one. He talked about how he was, yeah, had come to a living faith. So this, this mission began back then, but it continues now and even today people still become Christians. Well, this Resurrection Sunday, each of our lives might be complicated. We've got our own burdens and our own worries, our sorrows and our fears. And we can be tempted at times to despair, can't we? That's a reality. But as we meet together as God's people, uh, let's continue to be those who are still joyful. We, we've got much to rejoice about uh, in God's goodness to us in Christ, that he is risen. And because of that, we can... Uh, walk our journey through life with great joy. We've got joy in the salvation that Jesus, our risen Lord, brings to us, the forgiveness of sins. So let us close in a word of prayer and be, be grateful for the resurrected Lord Jesus. Let us pray. Lord, we do thank you for this um, passage today, which reminds us once again of the living hope we can have because Jesus is risen from the dead. Lord, we give you thanks that you accepted his sacrifice for our sins. We give you thanks that he's the living one who can give our, our lives new life as well, the forgiveness of sins and the gift of your Holy Spirit. Lord, we give you thanks for the hope that we have both in life and in death. And we pray that you'd help us to be those who walk uh, closely with you all of the, the days of our lives. Help us to be con those who continue with their trust in Jesus as Lord and Saviour until we go to be with you. We pray for these things in his name. Amen.